So are you there, Psalm 103? Let's look at this together. Of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I hope that you heard it. Our passage repeats the command to bless the Lord six times. Generally speaking, to bless the Lord is to praise the Lord. But I want us to notice now that this command that is being offered in this psalm is a man who is directing the command to his own soul. Now, in both a Hebrew and a Greek-speaking context, the soul of a person is this. It's that deep inner principle that drives and directs everything that a person thinks, everything that a person feels, and everything that a person does. It is the critical element of life. Every person has a body and a soul. Without the soul, the body has no life. King Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12.7 gives us the classic biblical definition of death. Uh, It's the soul or the spirit being separated from the body. That's death. Uh, Body and soul together constitute life. And it's the vital principle of the soul that then uh, drives the body. And the poet in our our psalm this morning is actually uh, preaching to his own soul. We've uh, seen this before. And very quickly, uh, the writer uh, of the psalm seems to be uh, none other than King David himself. 
There's 73 psalms out of 150 that have of David in the title. Now, doesn't necessarily mean that David wrote the psalm. It may mean that these psalms are written uh, for David. They're dedicated uh, to him. It may also mean that these psalms uh, belong to a collection of psalms that are associated with David's uh, kingship in some way, a a member of the Davidic line, uh, perhaps. Or it may mean, the phrase of David, that these psalms are actually written by David himself. And so of those 73 psalms that have of David in the title, 13 of them actually introduce uh, historical uh, events in the life of David. Uh, And so I take uh, Psalm, uh, all 73 of these psalms, including Psalm 103, this one, as having been written by King David himself. And, And so here's what we have. We have the great king of Israel asserting a rule over his own soul, commanding his soul six times, bless the Lord. So here is an evocative picture of a king before his own subjects commanding them to follow his example by taking command of their own souls. And we're being commanded to take command of your soul, as it were. Added to this picture is the fact that the Hebrew word for bless comes from the word for kneel, or uh, literally to uh, bend the knee in kneeling. Uh, or simply to bend. And King David then, the, the, the one whom the people of Israel owe all of their allegiance to as their king, uh, chosen by God, publicly commands his own inner life to bend down before the Lord. I mean, the picture couldn't be more striking to the man or woman watching the king as he exerts all of his strength to uh, bend his inner life before the Lord. Now, this is strange, a strange picture, uh, to be sure. But many of us uh, really function without even acknowledging that we have a soul. I mean, we may think of ourselves as a, a person of intellect or a person of passion or a person of action. But really, all of these qualities uh, belong to all of us. And, and what we need to know if we're to understand Psalm 103 is we need to know what is the, what is the thing that drives the intellect, the passion, and the action of a person. Because the earliest recipients of Psalm 103, they would have understood exactly what King David meant. His inner drive, his soul, it needed to be commanded so that it would bless the Lord. It needed to be commanded to bend before the Lord. And where the soul points, the whole life will follow. Everyone in King David's original audience would have understood that about this command to his soul. So what David is assuming is that beginning with the soul, the totality of the Christian life, Everything about the Christian life owes praise and blessing to God. We might summarize the entire psalm like this. The entirety of the Christian life, every thought, every emotion, and every action is meant to flow from a soul bent in worship to God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We would add to that that this can only happen. A life like this can only be our life if it happens by God's great grace. So in verses 1 and 2, David begins with the scope 
of his need. He uses a word twice that gives us a sense of what David is up against. He says in verse 1 that uh, not only his soul, but uh, all that is within me needs to be bent to the Lord. Uh, Just keep this in mind. I mean, this is a man, a man who can say this. This is a man who doesn't wish to lay claim to a single square inch of his identity. Uh, Everything that flows from his soul, everything that is within him belongs to God in an attitude of sincere worship. Many of us know people who are profoundly devoted to a cause or something that they see as larger than themselves. Uh, For me, I think of Olympic athletes. I think of performance musicians. I think of uh, ballet dancers. These are the kind of people who pursue something relentlessly. They seem to give every single minute to the cause. We know people who approach all kinds of aspects of their life with Olympic determination. We can say all we want about the various responsibilities that King David felt as a husband and as a father and as a king. But he wants everything about himself, all that is within him, to be thoroughly fastened to the praise of God. Now... It's uh, not very hard, I think, for us to imagine that David's cry of command to his soul is actually a shout of desperation. It would seem that his soul is uh, caught in a struggle of some sort such that he would address his soul directly. Uh, He seems to be enduring, as one American hymn writer puts it, the crashing waves that overwhelm the soul, the roaring winds that leave us stunned and breathless, the sudden storm beyond our life's control. And so King David is shouting at his soul, and all that is within me, bend to the Lord. Some of you know this about the London pastor, John Newton. John Newton was famously critical of Handel's Messiah. One of the things that got under his skin was that the people of London loved to sing Handel's Messiah, loved to sing especially the references to Malachi 3, 1 through 3, in which impending judgment upon the world is sure. And what irritated John Newton is that uh, as uh, the people of London would uh, sing these words, these words from Malachi 3, uh, very few of those singers thought enough to consider the state of their own souls in the impending judgment of God. According to John Newton, they would sing Handel's Messiah in ignorance. And what we need to wonder ourselves is if our own life uh, looks from afar like a life of uh, a wafting melody of placid placid stupor, uh, what do you think about your own soul? Uh, When people look at you, do they sense your concern for the state of your soul? Or are you merely living a life that is like many others, a life in which you're trying to become as happy as possible? And so Christian uh, David is uh, setting before us an example. We've stopped shouting at our souls, have we? Have we stopped crying that our souls would uh, bend in praise to God? Have we stopped crying out that every uh, fiber of every thought, every fiber of every feeling, and every fiber of every action would serve to praise our good and great God? And here's an example for us, a man crying out to his own soul, 
aware of a soul, crying that that soul would bend and bend and bend before God. So not only does David want to give uh, all that is within him to God, he knows that to do this, he needs a fresh remembrance of all that God has done for him. Everything within him, everything within him needs to notice everything that God has done for him. And so uh, he uses that word uh, all, everything, all things that are within me, and he uses it again, uh, forget not all of God's benefits, everything that God has done. It's there in verse 2. The uh, word uh, benefit refers to the accomplishments of someone else. To forget not all of his benefits is to remember the successfulness of God. The, the points and the subpoints and the sub-subpoints of God's own resume revealed in creation and in the history of the world and in the life and ministry of Jesus and in the life of the Christian church today. David acknowledges that everything within him needs to notice everything that God has done for him. For David, this is critical. Uh, David knows that what he needs is he needs uh, everything within him to uh, come up against everything that God has accomplished for him in a tremendous conflagration of human desperation right next to God's divine work. His soul will never bend without God's grace. Well, how would you like then a soul that is calm, even settled in troubling times? Well, the grace of God and his accomplishment of salvation, it's utterly necessary for this. No soul will be content. No soul will be bent in praise without God's grace. In a letter uh, written to a dear friend, the Cambridge minister, Charles Simeon, uh, wrote this. He said uh, to his uh, friend, may your crown be daily growing in the number and richness of its jewels, and may your own soul be watered by the dews of heaven. This is exactly what a Christian needs to hear. We need the cloud of God's grace to burst open and to bathe our souls in the rain of his accomplishments. And without this, our souls will never bend to the Lord. We need grace, grace, grace. And so we see this as David then in verse 3 matches his desperation With all the benefits of God, he actually uh, gives us a a list. He's told us the scope of his need in verses 1 and 2. And now he says in verses 3, 14, uh, he he says that here then are those benefits, the abundance of God's salvation. Now, if we were to wonder what King David thought was the greatest accomplishment of God, would you have an answer? David, what do you think is the greatest accomplishment of God? Of God. The accomplishment most necessary for a soul to be bent in adoration of God. When we look at Psalm 103, I believe we'd have to say that, uh, that David clearly relishes the forgiveness of God on sinners. 
In verses 3 through 10, David gives this catalog of the benefits of God. And and really what he's doing is he's offering great praise for the forgiving character of God. Uh, Look at verse 3. We find David's introduction to God's benefit. Uh, God is the one who what? Who forgives all your iniquity. Now, iniquity is a Hebrew word with the implication not just of wrongdoing, but a wrongdoing has been found out. The criminal has been caught red-handed. The evidence is incontestable, and the guilt is undeniable. But God, uh, he forgives all your iniquity. That's what David says in verse 3. And then in verse 10, uh, we have the conclusion of this catalog of God's benefits in the clearest language. Uh, And David uh, repeats the vocabulary in verse 10 of verse 3. He says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The forgiveness of our law-breaking surrounds David's thoughts of the greatest accomplishment of God. And we, look at, we could look at, uh, at the eight verses, verses 3 uh, through 10, uh, and notice that, that there uh, are 11 verbs that, that describe God's work. And uh, all of these uh, works of God are accomplishments of His that we uh, receive. They're benefits that we receive by His grace. And each of these verbs describe God's accomplishment on behalf of a particular kind of person. A Christian person. David is a believer. And here he is reminding himself of God's great work for a believer. David is a man whose soul seems to be stiff, seems to be pursuing a different direction, and so he cries that that soul would bend. But David needs to be reminded the great benefits that flow out of the accomplishment of God to forgive the sins of a sinner. I wonder if it's sometimes hard for us as Christians to imagine that our soul could be battered. We're surprised and sometimes even embarrassed that our soul would be hurt. Embarrassed that our uh, lusts and our wayward affections would drill down so deep. And we just become astonished. And David seems to be uh, hitting that uh, head on. A, a famous novelist said, nothing is allowed to die in a society of storytelling people. And what David is doing is he is telling the story of God's redeeming grace to his own soul. He's preaching to a battered soul the story of God's redeeming grace. Uh, Look what he says in this story, just going down from verse 3 to verse 10. He's saying in this story of redemption, uh, God, he forgives. Uh, God, he heals. God, he redeems. Uh, He crowns with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies with good. He works righteousness and justice. And not only this, David seems to be saying to his soul, despite the crashing waves uh, that seem to be belittling that soul, that God doesn't chide or contend with us, that he does not keep his anger forever, that he does not deal with us according to our many sins, and he does not repay us according to our many iniquities. Even though the Christian knows this is precisely what he or she deserves. 
You know, in fact, if we were to ask David to summarize what he means by preaching to his soul in this way, we find that the great summary is, according to verses 11 through 14, a beautiful metaphor of a perfect father, adoringly affectionate for his child. This is how David is apprehending the story of redemption as he's preaching that story to a desperate soul. He knows that God loves to such a degree that the many transgressions of his child are cast as far as the east is from the west. And David knows that while this father knows everything about us, his compassion never wavers. You know, if we wanted to preach all of these truths to our own soul, here's how we do it. We preach Christ Jesus. That's God's adoring affection for his people. It's the person of Jesus. It's the work of Jesus. This is how we preach to our souls. We remind our souls of our good Savior. He is the one whose soul was troubled beyond comparison. His soul, the soul of Jesus, was troubled by the betrayal of his disciples, John 13, 21. His soul was the soul that was troubled by the impending death that he knew he must die, Matthew 26, 38. His soul was troubled by nothing less than your iniquity and my iniquity and the punishment that that deserved. In the very evening of his crucifixion, Jesus says to his father, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And before the day's over, Jesus allowed his soul to serve as the soul for all those who profess faith in the gospel. Rather than preserve his soul, he hung it upon the cross and he said, It is finished. He bowed his head. In John 19.30 says he gave up his soul. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, says eloquently that Jesus' soul stands in place of our soul. He must quit heaven in order to bring us there. And this is true. This is what Jesus did. He gave up everything for you and for me. And for David. And David is reminding his soul of the compassion of the Father, the great love that didn't spare even his only begotten Son. This is the compassion the Father has for you and for me, his adopted children. He who spared not the soul of his only begotten one has preserved your soul and has preserved my soul. And so this reminder then of God's grace bends your soul today, just like it bends David's soul. And from that soul, then, by God's grace, will flow every thought and every emotion and every action of your life, which ought to look like your soul, a soul that is bent upon praising and worshiping God. Now, let's backtrack. Let's see what David has done here. David has told us the scope of his need in the first two verses. And then he moves on to define uh, the many benefits of God's story of redemption, the the abundance of God's salvation. And he does that in verses 3 through 14. uh, And he concludes where I now would like for us to conclude with the worship of God in all of God's kingdom. 
The man who began by preaching to his own soul, bless the Lord, oh my soul, that's how he began. He's now filled with such vigor that he begins to preach to the entire cosmos. Look at verse 20. Bless the Lord what? Oh my soul? No. Bless the Lord, oh you his angels. Who he also seems to be calling mighty ones in verse 20. Those who obey the will of God. And then look at verse 21. Bless the Lord, O my soul. No. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will, which, uh, which would ordinarily in the Hebrew signify angels. That word for host refers to uh, angels that are engaged in battle. But here in verse 21, uh, David may be preaching to all the saints on earth who are uh, God's ministers. It's, it's hard to tell the object of verse 21. Uh, And then look at verse 22. Bless the Lord, O my soul. No. Bless the Lord, all his works. Clearly a reference to the entire created world. Now, uh, what's happening here? King David, he's he's come unglued. The the personal devotion of a man who preaches God's accomplishments to the deep recesses of his own being. Well, he's now uh, turned up the volume of his voice and he's turned away from his soul to proclaim the accomplishments of God to the entire created world. This is the ebullient cry of a man who believes what he says. It applies to his soul. It applies to the entire universe. Now, I think it's fair to say that when we look at this close to Psalm 103, on the surface, it seems to be the epitome of arrogance. Uh, That which David thinks that his own soul needs, uh, the, the bending power of God's grace, he preaches to the heavenly realm. He preaches to the church universal. He preaches to all the created world. And on the surface, it just looks like arrogance, doesn't it? David Wells once said that if the church is not in possession of the truth, if the church of Jesus Christ is not in possession of the truth, well, then it's been left speechless. He says the church should have nothing to say because without this truth, its private insights are no more believable, no more compelling, and no more desirable than anyone else's. And David Wells, he's right. If the church is not in possession of the truth, she has nothing to say. But if the church is in possession of truth, then why would she ever be silent? The power of God's grace working in the gospel is powerful enough to save the sinner from the depth of damnation. God working in the gospel is powerful enough to take the old man and make him a new man. God in the power of the gospel saves the lost for all eternity. And the power of God's grace working in the gospel is powerful enough to alter the course of a Christian's soul so that regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their troubles and their difficulties, the entirety of thought and emotion and action can be, by God's grace, bent to the praise of the Lord. The power of His grace. But if the church is in possession of truth, That same power of God's grace, that same power that saves the sinner, that same power that more and more bends the sinner's soul, well, 
That same power of God's grace, it's powerful enough to bend the heavenly places and the entire created universe. You see what David is doing as he closes this psalm. He is, he is referring uh, to God's undeniable kingship, his power over all things. So David tells us that the entirety of the Christian life, every thought, every emotion, every action is meant to flow from a soul that is bent in worship of God. But this will only happen by his grace. But my brother and my sister, we have that grace. We need to begin talking to our souls, praying that our souls would bend in praise and that that bending would affect everything we think and feel and do. What we need to hear is that the church is called to remind one another of the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins. But we also need to remind one another that that which we believe, that which is the power of the gospel to save, that this is not some kind of local religion, a devotion to a local deity, a community tradition. Remember that the everything that is within me in verse 1 and the all of his benefits in verse 2, it shows up again in verse 19. And here's what we need to remind one another. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules where? Over all. The God that is working within you, the God that you can trust to continue his work in you, is the God of gods, Lord of lords. The whole world will one day be bent into conformity to the will of God. And so I appeal to you, as King David appeals to all of us, command your soul, preach to your soul, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bend, soul, bend. And praise him for the grace that bends souls. Let's pray together. Father, you are powerful to convert. We thank you for our conversion. You are powerful to sanctify. We thank you for your power of sanctification. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the power of your great grace would more and more bend our soul so that every thought, every emotion, and every action serves to give you praise. We come in Jesus' name. Amen.